A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been gener- generously sponsored by the All Daf Daf Yomi app. Get your All Daf Daf Yomi app for the best Magidi Shiurim, the best Daf Yomi Shiurim around, and of course all the supplements that they have to offer to make the Daf more enjoyable, more accessible, and more exciting. And um, especially now, during these challenging times, when it's hard to get to the Daf Shir, you want to be able to keep up the consistency with the Daf get the old Daf, Daf app. I really hope uh, everyone is safe and well during this challenging time, and um, everyone should be healthy. Um, we have a yard site coming up, a very special yard site of one of the great, great leaders of the previous generation of the 20th century, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, very beloved by all, very fascinating individual. And uh, this recently, a few months ago, I had the uh, privilege of being by his kever for the first time, went down to the Mount Judah Cemetery, led a group there, a little bit of a tour, and it was my first time uh, there. And it was very nice to have had that privilege, and hopefully we'll have more opportunities to do so. So we'll talk a little bit about Rabbi Yaakov uh, Kamenetsky. Um, he was known, I think Rav Shach and I think others called him the Chakima de Yehudoi, the wise man of the Jews, the Kluger Yid, the very brilliant individual, very insightful, deep. And that's uh, definitely one of the many, many things that he was known for. And um, so I'm going to try to share today a few stories. This is not a biography. This is not about his life. Um his, you know, he came from a world of, he lived, grew up in a little village near Minsk and went through Slabotka, was a rabbi in Lithuania and Tsitevian. And, the, you know, that was, that was the first half of his life. And he lived the first half of his life in the world of, you know, the Musser of the Litvish Yeshivas. And his influence and later on in life, was when he achieved fame, was in the United States as a rabbinical leader, as a Rosh Hashiva, as as a person who of sage counsel, and and um, how did he end up in America? So first, just how he got there is a story is a is a really interesting story. 
He was a rabbi in this very tiny Lithuanian shtetl called Tsetevian. And, um, and he was very poor. You know, small towns didn't have much money to support their rabbis, which was a common phenomenon. They, to be a rabbi in a large city was very often very profitable. You know, they, they gave a nice salary to their rabbis in most big cities. And, and, but in the small towns, the rabbis sometimes were great people, but they, they were unable to be supported by their town, which the story of the rabbinate in the old Russian empire or, or in independent Lithuania at the time is, uh, is quite an interesting one, but for another time. And, and he's, he's looking to get a better position. And he tried to get the position in a larger town, not far, called Vilkomir. I bring, or, you know, in groups to uh, Vilkomir, Lithuania. I've been there a couple of times, and I've told the story in Vilkomir. There's an old shul there, and we go out to the forest also, and a tragic uh, place, the Cave Arachim, where mass grave where the Jews of Vilkomir were killed also. It's a, it's a, whole, a whole visit. I've been there. And and uh, talk about how Rabbi Yaakov Kavaneski was almost the rabbi here, and what happened, and his candidacy was almost uh, guaranteed. His his brother-in-law, Rabbi Avram Grzynski, the Mashgiach of the Slabatki Yeshiva in Slabatki and Kovna, um, went down to Vilkomir to try to advocate for his brother-in-law, Rabbi Yaakov, and it seemed like he was a shuin. But there was another candidate. The other candidate was Rabbi Yisuf Zusmanovich, who was known as the Yerushalmi. Originally came from Yerushalayim, but he was the son-in-law, one of the sons-in-law of the previous Labatka Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Mordechai Epstein. When Rabbi Mordechai Epstein moved to Hebron, he didn't exactly leave clear instructions about how he would relinquish his positions in Slabatka. He was both the rabbi of the town, and he was also the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva in Slabatka. And um, it was a bit of a dispute in Slabatka. I think a bit of a dispute is minimizing it, um, of, about who would become the rabbi to succeed Rabbi Mordechai Epstein. So one candidate was Rabbi Zalman Asofsky, who was, who was a leading member of the Kovna Kail, the Slobatka Kail, and, um, and Rabbi Yasef Zusmanovich, who was a son-in-law of Rabbi Mordechai Epstein, he wanted to, to get at the position, and, and it became a part of the, the Musser and anti-Musser factions, which was a dispute of the previous century and really wasn't uh, didn't exist anymore, but it kind of came back through this dispute about the rabbinate in Slabatka, because Rabbi Yisuf Zusmanovich was perceived to be in the anti-Musser camp, or at least not the pro-Musser camp. And either way, it was there was it wasn't 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 exactly resolved, and it was kind of the embers of this dispute were still. Uh, we're still burning on in 1936 when Reb Leib Rubin, who was one of the greatest Reb, Rabbanim in, in Lithuania and had a yeshiva in Vilkomir, he was known as Reb Leib Vilkomirer, a great, great rabbi, and he's quoted a few times by contemporaries of his day. I believe Reb Lechana Wasserman quotes him a few times in Kaivitz Shiurim. His sons-in-law, Reb Leib Rubin, had a yeshiva for younger boys in Vilkomir, but he also had some pretty impressive sons-in-law. One of his sons-in-law was the Panavizhirov, and um, he had uh, he had uh, Rabasha Baron, the the other uh, the other Rashivan Panovich at the time was also a son-in-law, and Shargafayvul Horowitz was a son-in-law in Slabatka. Kitzer, he he uh, he was a very impressive individual. 
So when he died, there was this fight about the rabbinate. Would it be Rabbi Yisus who was looking to get out of Slabatka, or would it be Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was the brother-in-law of the Slabatka Meshkiach, Rabbi Grzhensky, who's clearly in the Musser camp, and it became a dispute about that rabbinate. And um, Rabbi Yisus Zismanovic was able to secure the rabbinate of Vilkomir, um, and Rabbi Yaakov was forced to face his family, not being able to get the rabbinate in the larger city. It was a dark day, a sad day, a tragic day, and he was forced to go into exile to the United States to find and look for a job there, and because he had no other choice. That was the terrible tragedy that brought him to America. Ultimately, um, the entire town of Vilkomir, along with their rabbi, Yisus Zismanovich, and the entire town of Slobodka, along with their rabbi, Reb Zalman Asavsky, and along with most of the Lithuanian Jewry, unfortunately, uh, about five years later, in the summer of 1941, was wiped out, uh, unfortunately, by the Nazis and their collaborators. So the tragedy that Derbyankiv was not able to get the rabbinate in Vilkomir ultimately saved his life, which is, uh, you know, sometimes the way Providence and Hashgachos Hashem works. So... He gets to America, and now I want to just tell a few stories about uh, what type of personality he was. You know, he was a great man, he was a gadol, he was a leader, he was a, a tremendous balmusser, he was a tzaddik and a masman, and all those things that people know. He was a reshiva, a rabbi, his son. I remember one of the times I spoke to Reb Nassim Kamenetsky about his father. I said, you know, your father was a leading member of the Agudas Rabbanim, which was members of the rabbinate, of communal rabbis, paiskim. And he was a rabbi in Seattle for a short period of time when he came to America. And he was a rabbi for a short period of time in Toronto. And then he became a Rashiva in Tervadas. So what was your father? Was he a rabbi or was he a Rosh Hashiva? That was what I asked him. And he said his father always saw himself as a rabbi. And he, he was a rabbi in Setevian. He was a rabbi of the town in Lithuania. It wasn't a Rosh Hashiva. So he said his father always saw himself as a rabbi. He said Rabbi Feivel Mendelovich hired him as Rashiva. He became Rashiva. He, he was able to play that role as well. But uh, he definitely was a rabbi and a Pisic. He was a multi-talented and tremendous Talmud Chacham. And that's not my position to start extolling his virtues as, as a Talmud Chacham because, first of all, everyone knows it. And second of all, who am I to judge that? So instead, I'll focus on a few stories about his personality and his life. And he was a bit unconventional. He thought out of the box. He said his mind. He spoke his mind. Today, many of the things he said would be considered even uh, controversial. But he really was wise and insightful and understood people extremely well and was a man of truth. So, so, And also those stories are more entertaining, let's be honest. So we'll go into a few stories like that. I'll start off with with one that uh, that always seems to be so relevant, that, um, that he was once commenting about how, uh, you know, sometimes great rabbinic leaders of the day are misled by the people around them, by their gaboyim or by their helpers, the askanim, the activists around them. And he said, we have in Tanakh that Elisha had a Gechazi. Elisha was the great Navi and he had Gechazi, who Chazal say are one of the few people who don't merit a portion in the world to come in Eilam So... How could it be that Elisha had a gechazi? So he said, and he said, he said, Yedin Godl Hotzain Gechazi. Yedin Elisha had Hotzain Gechazi. Every Elisha has his gechazi. And that sometimes, 
somehow that becomes part of the idea of of Elisha that if a great person some some for some reason he also has a gay chazi. Um There was once a child in in Muncie, and then later on in life, or Bianca Kamenetsky lived in Muncie after he he left Brooklyn, he left Williamsburg, and he was no longer in Tarvadas. And uh, there was a uh, a divorce that had taken place. The mother was no longer religious. The father was still religious, but the father was emotionally and mentally unstable. And the mother got custody. So there were several uh, well-meaning individuals who were trying to fight a custody battle on behalf of the father to get the son placed with the father because he was religious. The mother was planning on raising this child irreligious. He shouldn't keep Shabbos. He wouldn't eat kosher. It would be completely... uh, Irreligious, and they wanted to save this child for the Jewish people. So they went to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky to solicit his support for this endeavor. And uh, Rabbi Yaakov said, you know, he heard the whole story, and he says, well, it sounds like the father is not capable of raising the child. He's mentally and emotionally unstable. He said, yeah, but he's religious. He'll raise the child religious. So Rabbi Yaakov said, to make someone a fromayid, that's not that's not that hard. We teach him about Yiddishkeit. We teach him about Jewish life. He said to take someone who's not a mensch and make him into a mensch is very very difficult. First, you need a mensch. You can't take an animal and make him into a fromayid. If he's not capable of being raised by this parent, then he's not going to be a mensch, and it wouldn't be you wouldn't have you wouldn't gain anything out of the fact that he's from. Let him be raised secular, and then we'll try to make a from Jew out of him. Which again is a a brave stance in in that regard, and he said uh, he said a similar thing. Someone once came to him and asked him if he has a chance, a choice of going to a non-Jewish doctor or a Jewish doctor. Which one should he choose? So Rabbi Yaakov said, "The better doctor." So he said, "No. What if they're equals?" So he said, "It's hard to believe that they're exactly equal. You find the one who's a better doctor." said, no, 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 if you check out, they're really, really equal. So he said, okay, if they're really, really equal and it doesn't make a difference and they're all factors considered, so I guess you could go to the Jewish doctor. So he said, um, what about if one of us is a secular Jew and the other one is a religious Jew? Which doctor should you go to? So was trying to get rid of this guy. who was being annoying. So he said, you should go, whoever's the better doctor. You want to get better medical treatment. So he said, no, what if they're equal? <laughs> well, it's hard to believe that they're equal. But uh, so he said, no, 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 if all things considered and they're really, really equal, which one should I go to? So he said, if they're all, everything's considered and they're all equal. One of them is a religious Jew, he's a Bentaira. Yeah, you could go to the religious one. So he said, yeah, but the religious one, if he's a religious Jew... And he went to medical school, he went to college, he went to medical school, and he obviously didn't really consult with uh, rabbinical leadership because they don't advise yeshiva guys to go to medical school. It means he ignored the the policy of the rabbis, the Das Torah. So why should we go to someone like that? So, he, you know, he, I guess he, he loses patience with a guy like that bothering you at some point. So he says to him, thank God that some people don't listen to us. That's why we have some good doctors out there. And uh, which is which 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 brings me to the next story, which I heard recently by someone who was I heard I heard a shear or something, and and he mentioned this story. Rabbi Yankovinetsky stood up when Ramayshu Sharer came into the room by a meeting of the Agudas Yisrael. Ramayshu Sharer was the legendary president of the Agudas Yisrael. 
So I asked him, why did he stand up for him? He's a layman. He's not a, a great rabbi. He's a clean shaven. He's a president. He's, he's, you know, he's an important person. So he said, you know, we're supposed to stand up for someone who's one of the G'dayle Yisrael. So it's the, the person who decides who the G'dayle Yisrael are, for sure I have to stand up for him. So, so, um, which, you know, this is the way he related to you know, Askanim in, in leadership positions. So his, uh, his grandson, who's a big uh, Jewish history soundbites listener, um, uh, also a big Mechanech, uh, Mordechai Kamenetsky. So he told me several stories about his grandfather, great stories. He said when he was uh, learning in Eretz Yisrael, so his, father, his grandfather came to, or Yankonis came to, uh, to the airport to visit Eretz Yisrael. So he went to greet him at the airport. And two people, this is in the 60s or 70s, I guess in the 70s. And um, two people arrived with cars to pick him up. One of them was Alexander Lynchner, who was a student of his from Taravadas and who, who was running the Boys Town um, institution in Yerushalayim. And he came like uh, like someone who would be running an educational institution, a very simple car. He didn't have much, he didn't have anything fancy. And the other one who came to pick him up was the Israeli politician, the famous, wealthy, uh, Gerich Hasid Munya Shapiro, also a bit of a legend in, in Israeli politics. And he came with a nice, fancy car of someone of his standing. And they both offered Rabbi Yagakamanetsky a ride. So Rabbi Yaakov, who had to go to Yerushalayim and not to Tel Aviv, and he also was scheduled to speak to Rabbi Alexander Lynchner, Rabbi Sander Lynchner. So he he um, he said, uh, "I'm going to go with with my Talmud." So Munya Shapiro said, "Yeah, but I have to talk to you about a lot of things also." So he said, "No problem, come with us in in in, in his car." And and Mordechai Kamenetsky, who was a bacher in 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 uh, in Panovich, and learning in Israel, then he said, you could sit with my grandson in the back. Munya Shapiro doesn't sit in the back of a little, uh, little jalopy. So Yaakov turned to him and says, it'll be good for you to feel like what a poor man feels like once in a while. It'll be, it's okay. It's, it's, it'll be nice for you to feel that. And, um, you know, he, um, in, uh, when he was still a rabbi in Toronto, so a very interesting story. He, there was someone who spread the, you know, most people, most Jews, who, you know, the story of uh, American Jewish life. Um, they, they were, most people worked on Shabbos, unfortunately. You know, they felt like they had no choice. Stores were open on Shabbos. And in the 40s, after the war, so someone spread a rumor to the simple shopkeepers in of the Jewish area in Toronto that uh, Mashiach is coming, and if you want Mashiach to redeem you then and bring you the Geula, then you have to close your stores on Shabbos, because uh, although Mashiach is not happy with people who don't keep Shabbos. And they made a big messianic fervor amongst the Jewish populace, and these simple Jews, many of whom had a deep belief in Mashiach, they planned on closing their stores, because Mashiach is coming. And Rabbi Kamenetsky, who was the Rav in Toronto at the time, he he uh, he let, sent a message basically to these stores that don't pay any attention to this Mashiach thing, and keep on doing whatever you've been doing. I don't think he explicitly told them open your stores on Shabbos, but he basically gave the message is don't change 
what your regular habits are, which is wild. He's basically telling them that they should, you know, continue with business as usual on Shabbos, which obviously it's not what he wanted them to do, but he told them to disregard the, uh, the messianic, uh, uh, rumors that were spreading. So when asked why he's doing such a crazy thing, you're like, what do you mean? First of all, why are you telling the Mashiach's not coming? He said, well, how are you telling them just to keep going as usual and not to, not to close their stores on Shabbos? They're about to close their stores on Shabbos. What could be bad about that? So he said, let me tell you something. Between you and me, do we have any reason to think, you know, we hope Mashiach comes any day, of course. But do we have any reason to think that Mashiach is going to come this week more than any other week? So there's a good chance that he won't. And what's going to happen next week? Mashiach won't come. And these people will be disappointed. And what's going to happen next Shabbos? They're going to open their stores again because Mashiach didn't come. And you know what else we lost? We lost one of the only last links that these simple Jews have with Yiddishkeit, with Judaism, with traditional Jewish life, which is the basic and simple belief in Mashiach coming. Because now they're not going to believe in that anymore either. So this way I'm telling them, don't pay attention to that. Mashiach is going to come whenever he's going to come. Always you should believe that Mashiach will come. What do we, what do, we do about Shabbos? Hopefully one day they'll, 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 we'll figure that out also. But right now we, want to, we don't want to take away that belief that they have that Mashiach will come. You know, the Rav Shach, who knew him from Slobodka, was a slightly younger than him. He, um, he used to, he, someone once was going to daven for him and he was going through a surgery or something. I forget the exact details of this story, um, but they, they, were, they were asking his name in the Panevish Yeshiva for a Mishabeirach, to, know, to, 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 to mention his name in a Mishabeirach, to mention Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's name. And no one remembered Rabbi Yaakov's mother's name. Something along these lines. I might be messing up the details. But the point of the story is, is that Rav Shach immediately knew his name and said, said what his mother's name was. And when asked, how does he come to know Rabbi Yaakov's mother's name? He said, I daven for Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky every tefillah because the Jewish people can't exist without him. And, uh, you know, he was someone who was, who was very, very much needed for his wisdom. He, he once was in a car with another great rabbi and when he lived in New York, New York City, and they got lost. And he immediately told the, ta- the driver directions about how to, how to get out of it. And the other rabbi was amazed. How do you know how to get away out around Manhattan? So he said, not only do I know all the streets of Manhattan and Brooklyn, I know how to get around, but I also know the subway system. And he said, because there's a Gemara that says that, uh, that Shmuel knew the Shvile Dirakia. He knew the pathways through heaven just like he knew the Shvile de Nahardoi, just like he knew the streets of Nahardoi. And the Gemara is praising Shmuel that he knew the, the pathways of heaven, so to speak, whatever that means. They said, but if he didn't know the streets of his own city, then it wouldn't be much of a praise for him. So it must be that Shmuel knew the streets of Nahardoi, because otherwise, what, what are you comparing it to? It must be that he knew it. So if he knew it, then, then why would Shmuel know it? Why is it so important? Nahardo is a big city. It was a huge city. Why would, why, why is it important to know it? It must be that it's important to know the streets of the city that you live in. So I sat down one day and I figured out how to get around New York and I, I memorized it. He was someone who not only was able to memorize it, but he felt that it was an important thing. When he moved to Muncie, 
just to show how, how with it he was. So uh, when he moved to Muscat, he was rural. He had all kinds of um, neighbors and a different type of place, especially Muncie in the 1970s. And it was Halloween night, and someone knocked on his door to trick or treat. And the one who answered the door was either a student or a family member. I don't recall which. And uh, he was trying to, he decided he has to explain to Rabbi Yaakov what Halloween is. You know, I have to explain what these kids, what these kids want, these non-Jewish kids, they want some candy. And Rabbi Yaakov said, oh, they came to trick or treat. The Rebetzin already prepared pekalach for them. And he already had a whole basket on the side near the door prepared for the trick or treaters to be able to distribute it to them for when they come around. A cousin of mine uh, told me that by his bris, he didn't remember this, but his parents told him, by his bris, he was the first boy after several girls, and uh, his his two grandfathers both wanted the privilege of being his sandik. You know, they, they, they foresaw that he would be my cousin one day, so I guess they wanted to have the schus of holding him by the bris, and and the two grand and it caused a big shalom bias issue, which is quite common in Jewish households. And um, my cousin's father didn't know what to do to give it to his father or to his father-in-law, so he went to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and they lived in Brooklyn, and Rabbi Yaakov was already living in Muncie. And Rabbi Yaakov said to him, "Would any would your father or father-in-law object to me being the sandik?" So he said, "Well, of course not. They would they would think it's great if you're the sandik, but." You're in Muncie, we're in Brooklyn, it's an early morning bris, you're already older. I'm not that close with you, I just came to you for an Eitzah to ask your advice, because everyone does. So he says, no, I'll come, because for the sake of Shalom Bayis, of causing peace in a Jewish family, I'll come, and he was the Sandik for the uh, for that bris. Um, Yag Kamenetsky, his, his grandson told me that he, he, as far as he knows, his grandfather only cried twice in his life, one of them was when he forgot a pasuk in Divrei Hayamim in his old age. He was 90 years old, and he forgot a pasuk in Divrei Hayamim. And he said, how could it be that in my old age I forgot a pasuk in Divrei Hayamim? I didn't remember, he didn't remember by heart. Now, most people don't even know that the Sefer exists. But um, that same grandson, Mordechai Kamenetsky, told me that when he was in Philly, he was 17 years old, and they were learning Tanakh in, in Philly. They were learning the Sefer of Shmuel and the story of Basheva and David HaMelech. And he asked his grandfather, you know, we don't really understand the whole story there of David HaMelech and what happened there, and it's, 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 it's big stuff. Should we even be learning it? And, and Rabbi Yaakov told him, you should learn it. And when you go through Tanakh 80 times like I did, then you'll understand it. So this is in 1973, 13 years before he died, and he had already gone through Tanakh 80 times. I want to end off with a story that really brings out the Midas of the great uh, beauty of his ways, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, is that one, he was a very, you know, like a Slabatka. He lived Slabatka his entire life, and he epitomized Slabatka to many. He was really a perfect model of what the altar of Slabatka wanted out of Godless Adam, greatness of man. He always looked perfect, dressed well. You know, everything was misudar, was organized and orderly in his ways. And one time he had an appointment. He was leaving New York and he had to get down to Baltimore. He had to take a very early morning train. And he met whoever was accompanying him by the train. And uh, Rabbi Yaakov appeared very not orderly, very disheveled, 
his hair, his beard, his clothing, he looked very tzaflegan, very disorganized. And he said, Rebbe, you don't normally, you don't look yourself, what happens? I'll be honest, I didn't sleep the entire night. He says, why didn't you sleep the entire night? So he said, because since I had to wake up extra early, so I realized I would have to set an alarm clock because I'm waking up earlier than I normally do. When I realized I had to set up an alarm clock, so I live in Williamsburg, people live close together, and I have a neighbor who works a late night shift, and he goes to bed, and he sleeps a little later, and my alarm clock would probably wake him up. I said, well, if my alarm, just because I have to wake up early does not give me a right to wake up someone else who works hard, and... Uh, and that's insensitive. There's no reason for me. It doesn't give me any right to wake him up just because I have to wake up early. So what's the only way to do it? I can't miss my appointment. I can't miss my train. So I have to, I'll have, I'll just have to stay up all night. And so he stayed up the entire night just to be able to not make sure that his, uh, just, just to ensure that he would not disturb his neighbors. That's a little bit, a few, uh, tastes of the uh, stories of the beauty of the ways of Rebecca Kamenetsky, uh, in honor of his yard site. And um, this is Yudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of Jewish history. Download the old DAF app for your DAF Yemi needs. You can subscribe to the Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.